On their second date, Craig Shapiro took a risk. He showed Liz Krueger his graduate film thesis. That could have been the end yeah. of date two, but instead Craig was like, she fixed my film, let's go to dinner. They ended up getting married and have been writing partners for 19 years. Their latest project is Salvation, a summer drama on CBS about an asteroid heading toward Earth. Large enough to cause an extinction-level event. Trajectory data has now been firmed up, and the latest calculations show that Samson has the potential to collide with Earth in 186 days. This is Showrunners. I'm Nicholas Carlson, Editor-in-Chief at Insider. A showrunner does lots of things, from directing to writing to making sure there are enough extras for a scene. The showrunner ultimately controls every facet of a TV show, which is why we created Showrunners, the podcast that talks to the people making the shows we love. On this episode of Showrunners, we talk with Liz Krueger and Craig Shapiro about the end of the world and balancing marriage with working on a TV show. Okay. You start. Okay, here's the thing. Oh, by the way. Yeah. We're married. Yeah, no, I know. Yeah, <laughs> no, this is on the list of things to address, say, of course. So yeah. for the people who can't see what's happening right now, we are being forced to share a microphone and asking a married couple that works together to share everything, including a microphone. Right, as an aside. The question is, will we kill ourselves <laughs> before yeah, the show, right before the show gets to the end of the season? Right. Faced with sharing a microphone. Yeah. Um, story. What's the show about? Okay, here's the thing. The pilot tells this story, which is an MIT student named Liam Cole realizes that a huge asteroid is coming in 186 days he goes and he tells his professor about it and by the next morning the professor has vanished and his place is trashed and Liam realizes he's being followed mm. so he freaks out and he doesn't know who else to turn to or where to turn in town is a tech billionaire named Darius Tans who is like a Elon Musk Steve Jobs type and he literally runs to him in his hotel hoping to get some help and when he presents the facts to him, he and Darius Tans, the, the billionaire, go to the Pentagon only to realize the government already knows, they've known for several months, and they're working on the problem. Hmm. And so going forward, it's about can the government side of things work with the Darius Tans private sector side of things because they have extremely different approaches to the problem and they must work together, but their operating systems are not going to work well together. Uh, what do you want to add to that, Liz? No, I thought you, he, Craig did a really good job. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, honey. <laughs> so, so, yeah, and when, when Liam goes and talks to Darius, he happens to, like, give a synopsis of the situation in such a way that it's, like, perfect for every henceforth episode to start the right. last time on. Yeah, the, right. We did the recap, you know, where he runs into the elevator and he says, Mr. Tans, my name is Liam Cole. In 186 days, uh, an asteroid's going to collide with Earth and we're all going to die. Unless we solve the problem. That's what happens when the elevator door closes. Right. I'm telling you, Mr. Tans, the sky is falling. And you may be the only person that can do something about it. So, okay, let's get to the marriage thing. You guys have worked to get, you've been married 19 years, I think I saw. Oh, longer than that. 20 plus years. 20 yes. plus But years. we've been working together pretty much consistently. This will be our, our 19th okay, year. Okay, yeah. yes. What is that like? Because the little personal thing, it's like, so I have a two-year-old. And prior to having a child marriage is like just two best friends hanging out all yeah. the time and then you have a child and it's like you have a project and it's a big change and it's harder suddenly when you have like things that are not just like hanging out to talk about and yes. deal with and yes. so yeah. how are you possibly doing this well, right I'll give you my version and then he'll, he'll give you his version. Yes, it's going to be like the, uh, the dating game or the new yeah. game yeah. we have wildly different versions well here's the thing I think it was like on our second date Craig was a graduate student at NYU's film school he was working on his graduate film, you know, his thesis project, and he brought me into the edit room, and I was lo watching his movie, and I was like, you don't need that. 
you don't need that, right? And so there I was in the edit room with him, and he was like, you know what, you're right. I don't need that. And so we ended up just sort of having that kind of relationship where we commented on each By the other's. Way, that could have gone south real fast. Yes, that could have been the end yeah. of day two. But instead, Craig was like, she fixed my film, let's go to dinner. So Something about that was attractive and sexy. Um, but um, so we started with this collaboration. We started writing before we had a child. We now have a child who's 19 years old. It happened very organically. So we started writing together, and then we didn't really think about the consequences to writing together. We <laughs> sold a script. And then all of a sudden, we were Kruger and Shapiro. We suddenly realized we were an entity now as a writing a partnership. And every time I tried to get away, I got pulled back in. It was very rough on the marriage initially because we had a child. And we were raising this child, and we had one income. And so initially, I, I kept thinking, we've got to break up. We have to break up the writing relationship so that I can get a job and he can get a job. But then, inevitably, we would come up with an idea and sell it. And then we would have to keep working together. Um, but after working in features for about eight, nine years, writing across the table from each other at home, we went bonkers. And we were like, we cannot look at each other across the table one more second. We have to get into TV yeah. where you're around other people. So we told our agent, we got to go get into TV. And she said, if you go into TV and you want to staff, you're going to have to be like, you know, staff writers and story editors. You got to sell pilots. You got to go sell pilots. So. We sold the pilot, and um, that was Necessary Roughness. That was our first show, and it was on USA. And once we started doing that, the great thing about writing together on a TV show is there's so much to do as showrunners that one person can't possibly do it all. So we split the work up, and as a result, we don't always see each other during the day. Mm. He's handling all the production meetings. He's handling all the visual effects. He's handling a lot of the first round of editing stuff. I spend more time in the writer's room. I spend more time writing and rewriting scripts. And so we found the division of labor was really helpful to our relationship, and we didn't always know what the other person had done during the day. So it was really helpful. This is a very long answer, but it was very helpful getting into TV for the, the marriage and the, the uh, creative relationship. Right. I'll add to that, you know, the charm of it is also the challenge of it, which is when you get in bed at night... Don't know where this is going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is completely G-rated, which is the impulse is to just keep talking about the show. Or when we're both up at three in the morning, we're still talking about the show. And that's kind of fun because we're both immersed in it in a way that a normal couple is not. One person is completely outside of whatever project the other person's working on. But the fun of it is we are totally consumed by this thing. And it's really fun because we are on an amazing journey together. But the downside is is really hard to turn it off and just say like, hey, did you see what was in the paper today? Or, or you know, to talk about a book or anything or what friends are up to because we get completely consumed by the project. So you can see it. I really do think it has some amazing pluses to it, but it definitely has some minuses. What do you do when you disagree? <laughs> well, there's a, there's a few plans in place for when we disagree. <laughs> uh, some of them have worked better than others over the years. You know what? We worked very closely with one of our closest friends, uh, Jeffrey Lieber, on Necessary Roughness. He was the third executive producer on the show. And because we're so close with him, he could easily be the tiebreaker and we would be okay with that. Or at least let's say that we were mostly okay with that until Liz wasn't always okay with that. But <laughs> it was great because he wasn't worried about uh, upsetting anybody or offending anybody. He's one of our best friends. So we frequently would bring him in as the tiebreaker. No, but I'll also say that um, a writing partnership, and people have said this many times before, a writing partnership is like a marriage unto itself. You know, that kind of relationship is a delicate balance. And like in a marriage, you really have to respect the other person. You have to trust the other person. 
And I really, really do trust Liz that over the years, a high percentage of the time, when she feels very strongly about something, I either come around or later realize, you know, she's right, she's onto something. And so I'll try to take a step back and say, how strongly do I really feel about this? Because she feels very strongly about it. And I'll tend to be like, all right, let's, let's do it. Let's try it. Yeah. And also Craig, his critical filter is much higher than most people's. So I know that if I can get something past him, that it's probably good. So, yeah. Yeah. so where did this show come from? From the sky, <laughs> literally. Right, from 300 million miles out. Well, here's the crazy thing. You know, we have this overall deal at CBS, and we were developing something, and the head of the network at the time is Glenn Geller, who just left a few months ago. But So this is September 22nd, so it's less than a year ago. Hmm. On a Thursday night at 8.30 p.m., we get a call from the head of the network saying, so I have this idea for a show. It's based on a dead script. Alex Kurtzman's company developed it. I like the idea. The script has been dead for two years, but I feel like it's a do-over. Would you guys take a look at it? And we said, well, what's it about? It's about an asteroid. We were like, really? <laughs> so um, we said, but it's Glenn, so we're going to obviously do it. So we, we say, send the script to us. Friday morning, we get the script. We read it. He calls right away. What do you think? Well, we think that we would do it completely differently because it started with people jumping out windows and already knowing about an asteroid. We didn't even get to that place in our first season. Mm. So he said, we'll take a look at it and see what you think. We spent a few hours just sort of shooting the shit. And then he calls back 4 o'clock and says, what do you think? I'm like, uh, well, here's what we might do. We might start with, like, you know, an MIT student, and we might do this and that. And we just threw a bunch of ideas out. And he said, okay, well, thank you for that. Um, I'll be in touch. Well, the phone rang 15 minutes later, and it was the head of the studio, and he said, so Glenn would like you to do this. And we said, do what? He said, write this pilot. But here's the thing. He needs a script in seven days because he's got to green light something for summer within the next two weeks. Exactly. (laughs) So we laughed, and he laughed, and we all thought this was crazy. We said, well, as long as it doesn't ruin our development, we'll, we'll take a shot at it. And he said, and don't worry about outlines or story areas. Just go write something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just skip the outlining part. Skip. Well, there, was, oh, there was no time, no time <laughs> for that. Skip the process. Right. So Craig and I went next door. We had this shitty little office on Ventura Boulevard with our assistant. And we're like, okay, so listen, we're going to sit in here. We're going to break story. Craig and I are going to write this thing. And we've got to turn something in in a week and a half. And then we're going to go back to our development. Our assistant's like, I'm in. I'm totally in. Saturday morning, we get here. We spend the whole day breaking story. We got cards up on the board. The next morning, his wife goes into labor. Uh And he's like, I'm not coming back. And now we're sitting there, the two of us, by ourselves. And to break and write a story that quickly, one that you haven't ever thought of before, is challenging. So we call a friend of ours, Gavin, and he was a story editor next day. We go, listen, if you come over here, you sit with us for a few days, we'll buy you lunch every day. And you just sort of shoot the shit with ideas, help us break story while we're writing. Um, we'll give you a job on the show if it, if it gets picked up, but of course it's not going to. This is just going to be free lunch. And he goes, sure, I'm in. So he comes and we just start writing pages like crazy. And it's a weird thing, but we're really liking it. So we send 40 pages to Glenn after 10 days. He immediately the next morning calls. He says, um, I really like this. How soon can you get me the rest? And we said, uh, I don't know, today's Tuesday. How about Thursday? Great. Thursday, we're finishing these pages like crazy. We didn't really know what the end was. We thought after we submitted the first three acts that he was going to say to us, thank you for trying. But instead, it was like, keep going. So now, um, it's 
Thursday at four o'clock or whatever, we were supposed to do this. Craig gets up to go to the bathroom. I'm sitting there and I suddenly have this idea and I start typing. He comes back, sits at the computer, he goes, you killed Carnahan? He's like, I just went to the bathroom for five minutes. You <laughs> well, killed Carnahan? Of course, you know, because we didn't actually have a worked out plan, this was totally out of the blue. And I'm like, I, I love Carnahan. And I, and I said, kill Carnahan. And I said, Craig, it's the fourth act. We've got to kill somebody. And we have to turn this in in an hour. And we just got to kill somebody. <laughs> and so we were literally writing furiously. And then in that last like hour or two, we had this whole idea for this graduation speech intercutting, which you saw, and all mm. that stuff. Just writing, 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 writing. And part of it is we've written together for so many years that we know how to do it under pressure. So we hit send, we go on our merry way. The next morning, Glenn calls and he goes, well, I don't think you guys are gonna have any time to do notes on this. Um, I'm gonna give it to Les for the weekend, Les Moonves. And we just said, okay. <laughs> and so I said to Craig, do you think Les Moonves has ever read a script by a writer that never had notes, that was never went through the notes process? No, it's impossible. No. So it goes up, and we still are like, whatever, whatever, and we go back to our other project, which we are pitching on that following week. The end of the next week, we keep hearing percolations, murmurs, and stuff. Glenn calls us at the end of the next week and goes, listen, we're going to green light this to series. So from the time we first heard about it until the time we had a green light was like about three and a half weeks. It was completely insane. And I said, Glenn, you know, we don't know what the hell the series is yet. <laughs> and he goes, oh, you guys will figure it out. <laughs> and so that was it. That was less than a year ago. So that's 11 months ago. Mm -hmm. From the moment we got that phone call to wrapping and being done with post, it will be less than a year. Amazing. Very unusual situation. Yes. How has the series changed from like when you thought about it back then? That's interesting. Well, I think we always knew we were not interested in doing a, a disaster movie. Yeah. We're interested in the human condition, yeah. and I think every show that we've done ultimately is a window into that, you know, and even on Extent, which was about aliens and hybrids and robots. Um, and robots, it was really about human beings and how we react to crises and how we react to change, and we just thought that was the window in here, and we quickly came up with this sort of Cuban Missile Crisis idea because we thought space is now the final frontier, whatever it is. I mean, that's the unexplored dimension to all of our geopolitics at this point. And mm -hmm. when we started doing research about asteroids and the reality of it, we realized that this is something people have studied because you can affect where an asteroid might land on Earth. A gravity tractor. That would deflect the asteroid using gravitational pull. So then we did all this research, and this is one of the more entertaining parts, of course, of being a writer. One of the most fun things you can do is the research. You know, research for Extant was so fascinating. It was all about AI and robotics, and Necessary Roughness was a lot of stuff about sports. We worked briefly on shows like Pan Am. Uh, we worked on um, Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce, which was also super interesting research about the nature of that stuff. So anyway, we loved this, and Liz had a friend. When I say friend, I mean a person she sat next to many decades ago in sixth grade who went to work at JPL. He's involved in the um, Europa probe that's about to launch in a few years. And so she literally reached out to him on Facebook and hadn't, hadn't talked to him in decades. He could not have been lovelier and more helpful, gave us lots of good information and pointed us to some uh, really interesting science. And then from there, we got a science advisor who's an astrophysicist. And it's been so interesting to do the research for this show because we tried to make the science as real as possible, even though the timeline is unrealistically compressed, yes. let's say. But we sort of liken it to like the good wife. Does anybody get a case, 
have hearings, go to trial, and have it resolved in one episode? Yeah, of course not. Without ever changing the wardrobe? <laughs> right. Right. The whole thing's ridiculous. But you understand the nature of the case is correct, just the timeline is compressed. And we tried so hard to do that with the science here to make it as realistic as we could and take it seriously and take the scientists seriously. One theme I've noticed in this show is... I don't know if a skepticism is the right word, uh, but like some kind of like a view of the government as like partially good and also scary and is doing sketchy things and just, am I picking up on something there? Well, yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I will say that another one of our favorite movies of all time <clears throat> is Three Days of the Condor, mm-hmm. right? And Three Days of the Condor is a perfect example of the government can be doing good things, but often... The government is not a single entity. There's a lot of a lot of maneuvering within the government. Left hand doesn't always know what the right hand's doing. And clearly they can be responsible for some serious damage and have a lot of power to pull off things that are not necessarily for the good of the average citizen. If you look at everything in history, I mean everything, the government is there for the safety and security of the people. But throughout history, we've had all sorts of traumas that came from the government action. I mean, everything from... Bay of Pigs to Iran-Contra, there are all of these things that have come from government activity and sometimes illegal government activities and sometimes our president didn't even know about them or allegedly didn't and there was Watergate and all of these things. So the government serves us in spite of itself, you know, and we're always the checks and balances on the government. And I think those themes have been explored for, you know, hundreds of years. Yes, forever. You know, the, that's a lot of power consolidated in one place. People have, should have a, a healthy fear of that. Right. And governments, like corporations, are made up of human beings. So there are good and bad people. And there are people who abuse power. And there are people that respect power. And we see that today in our government now as things seem to be running amok. Mm-hmm. Um, we offered this question to the writer's room and to the, the cast and other people, which is, if you had 186 days in an extinction-level event... Who do you trust to solve the problem? Do you trust the government or do you trust the private sector? The government has the Pentagon. It has unlimited resources. They can throw a trillion dollars at the problem if they have to, but they're also a giant bureaucracy and they're not super nimble. They don't shift gears and do things very quickly. On the other hand, if you could trust a guy like Elon Musk in the private sector, he doesn't have unlimited resources, but he has that kind of nimbleness that allows him to make quick decisions and maneuver quickly. Who would you trust? I was very surprised because nobody agrees. You hear different points of view from almost everybody, and it's because there really is no one right answer, and that's why within the context of the show, it would be nice if they could try to work together and bring the best of each side to the table. But you need a rocket powerful enough to get it there in time, and that rocket doesn't exist yet. Well, actually it does. We've modified one of your rockets, the Goliath 2. The test phase is almost complete. We launch next week. We have full confidence this will take care of the problem and no one will be the wiser. But of course, that's not likely to happen, not really possible. there are other elements. There are other elements that come into play, which is all these other countries that ultimately know about what's happening. And alliances form along not just political lines, but geographic ones. Because if the asteroid hits the Eastern Hemisphere, even if we are friends with Pakistan or India or whatever country we might have a relationship with, well, geographically now they're aligned with Russia. So there's all these interesting things that come into play because of the space issue. And yes, we are definitely fearful of too much government power. Yes, I I will say a healthy skepticism about government power strikes me as wise. Just as an amateur student of history, uh, that seems like a recurring theme throughout history. But is there anybody 
who doesn't have skepticism <laughs> about government at this mm. point? Yeah, I think there are people actually. Yeah, mm. I don't know who those people are. Not paying attention. So earlier you said something about like, look, an asteroid is is approaching the Earth. That's imminent trouble, and it, let's see what in humans that brings out. And you said I said, like is going on in, in the current situation. So, I mean, tell me more about that analogy. Well, it's interesting. <laughs> there is a picture in our writer's room uh, that appeared on the cover of Der Spiegel, which is a German magazine, mm. and it's a picture of Trump's head <laughs> as an asteroid. We happened to stumble upon that in the writer's room before the election. Wow. And uh, day three in the writer's room, Trump was elected. Mm. And I will be honest, there was a stunned silence that morning. What we're inspired by is people taking action when there's hopelessness. A lot of people felt hopeless after that. And what we have come to see is, how do you find hope in the face of hopelessness? And we took that theme and we really explored that, as you probably can see in the episodes you've seen already. How do you find hope in the face of hopelessness? That is what has inspired us about the current administration and how do you keep optimism when all hope seems lost? And that's what the show is about, really. And I think that's finding um, light in the darkness. And that is really where the show does end, is how to find light in the darkness. That really is where it goes. Right. Let's talk about the end of the world. Yeah. You know, you've, been, you've been thinking for about almost a year now about the end of the world. Yeah. It's funny. I've tried to maintain optimism, especially across the last year or two, and I always have. And I tend to think that somehow humans, through ingenuity, intelligence and grit, are going to find a way to always survive and make do. We, as a general species, are going to find a way to solve problems. And hopefully, before disaster. I tend to cling to that because otherwise it's really hard to get through the day. I really, really think it's hard to just get up and go, yeah, you know what? It's going to be an apocalypse. And uh, <laughs> it's a hard way to live day to day. So even though in the back of my mind, I think I probably permanently have that fear like we all do. Like, oh, it's, it's global warming. It's an AI out of control. It's the Terminator. It's, you know, all these things it could possibly and probably will be. And Elon Musk is constantly worried about AI getting out of control and he's freaking me out. But I try to maintain a, the positive view Honestly, I really think it's just because it's really hard to live otherwise and that we are going to solve these problems as they come up, even though we don't know what the solution is today through a combination of science and grit and just what we do as humans. But man, I hope it's not pie in the sky. <laughs> uh, you know, it's interesting because I spend a lot of time writing in hotel rooms by myself, like when I'm up in Toronto and I spend time writing the finale in a hotel room by myself. I spent a lot of time crying writing mm. the finale because it felt truly real to me. And I was very in touch with that feeling of hopelessness. And then in the midst of it, I also was very in touch with finding hope. And it's, it's a feeling. It's not an intellectual thing. It, it's not specific. Like Craig's is, <laughs> his is all about the science and the technology and we're going to solve the problems. Mine is more about the emotion. It's sort of like when all of this is going on and I feel so hopeless, I still tap into this little spigot of hope. It's always there. It's sort of drip, drip, drip. And I realize that is my nature. Hmm. That's where I write to. I look forward to seeing it. And thanks so much for your time and doing this. Really appreciate it. Thanks. It was really, fun. Really fun. Okay, yeah. good. It kept us from having to do work. So thanks. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening to Showrunners. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Acast and iTunes and leave us a review. It really helps. <laughs>